everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. Dean's going to tell us something weird. But first, my name's Carrie. I'm Erin. Uh, I'm, I'm Dean. <laughs> I'm Emma. I'm sorry I had a yawn. Uh-oh. Wow. Nice. Unprofessional. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I, wait. That's it? It's done with your introduction? Yeah. All right. All right. Quality work. Take it away. What do you want me to talk about? Nothing. <laughs> Today's episode... It's about an amazing story about a search for a lost city and the hero who found it. Oh my gosh, is this El Dorado? Atlantis? Oh. No. City rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> this is Timbuktu. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I have. When I was a kid, I mean, that was like the, you know, furthest an, away place ever. Just the yeah. most exotic place you can think of. Oh, wow. That's like going to Timbuktu or something stupid mm-hmm. like that. I just thought it meant like going really, really far. Yeah. Far and also, but also sort of exotic and foreign. It was it was actually one at one time the most legendary city in the world. Timbuktu in reality was the center of a vast trade route through kind of central northern Africa. This is a real thing? I thought it was just yeah. something yeah. people fucking said. Nope. I remember l- hearing it in, uh, learning about it in history class and be like, oh, it's real. It's <laughs> real. It's on the Niger River, which is a huge, huge river source in kind of north and, and western Africa. And uh, at this time, Timbuktu, by, by oh, let's say, I don't know, the 1700s, or even earlier than that, Timbuktu had been more or less lost Mm-hmm. To the Europe mine. It, it is sort of a lost city. They didn't have any contact with it for a long time. And it became kind of legendary. And it was thought of as this incredibly wealthy place that the memory was at it. Like, like you know, exaggerated things, but the, the roof tiles made of gold and palaces and great libraries with books and the center of, of, of learning and trade and culture really? in Africa. Yeah. Hmm. This yeah. by the late 1700s, the the scramble, or maybe early 1800s, the scrap was called the scramble for Africa, began, and that was this kind of mad rush to explore and exploit, of course, and colonize and colonize <laughs> the vast African interior. Europe had lots of little of settlements and cities dotting the coastlines and ports and such, but they mostly strayed into the interior along rivers for a short distance and met with fierce resistance. So there was little settlement and little exploration in the inland. And so Timbuktu was thought to be, if they could reach that and establish contact with Timbuktu, they could be an important part of this this scramble for Africa. Okay. And the British, by the way, by the 1800 or so, the British were particularly obsessed with this. And they wanted to beat the French there. The British and French were really the main competitors for African colonialism, and uh, the French would eventually become the most powerful force in West Africa, but at this time that wasn't quite well, clear yet. When did the Dutch do their little foray into Africa? Into South Africa yeah. was before that. That was more in the 1600s. Oh, okay. And they they did go much more inland from South Africa. But we're in North Africa. And West Africa, okay? Okie doke. So a a group called the African Association was founded in 1788 Mm -hmm. by the eminent English botanist Sir Joseph Banks, for whom something big is named after something like Banks. Yeah. What what am I thinking of? Hmm. Joseph A. Banks (laughs) suit store? Nope, not that. Not that. (laughs) Not Men's Warehouse. Nope, (laughs) nope, nope. Not that. I mean, like... Some, Bank of America. Bit, no, it's, <laughs> it's like a, something in Canada or something. I can't remember. Anyway, no, okay. no. Oh, you're killing me. The group, this group sought to kind of fill in the blanks of the map of Africa, and Timbuktu was one of their prime targets. Mm. Okay. So 
They sent an it's American. Like when you're in the Pacific Northwest, you just have to hit Seattle. Kind of like that, yes. <laughs> kind of exactly like that, absolutely. I heard the coffee is delish. <laughs> One day, they're going to make a lot of money from that. So they sent an American named John Ledyard to find Timbuktu. Right? How, well, just, well, how is he going to do that? <laughs> well, make hey. It special. Because, you know what? I'm going to tell you, I made it special. His <laughs> they just big, said, you, you go. <laughs> well, that, that, he applied. That thing. <laughs> he applied. He well, said, he has a, a good sense of direction. He's good GPS. <laughs> he, he did have an exploratory claim to fame. That was, he had made an attempt to cross North America west to east. The opposite way of Lewis and Clark, and oh. you would think. He was going, his plan was to start in Europe, like literally in England, cross Europe, that's easy, and then travel all through Russia, including all of Siberia. He was going to cross the Bering Strait, and then he was going to trek down the, this great unexplored mass of uh, North America, North American interior, into civilization on the East Coast. Go through Seattle. <laughs> Probably through Seattle. <laughs> Get sure. some coffee. Get a, load up because it was so a long like way through to go Canada there. and yeah. Greenland and, and America. Yeah, and not Greenland. No, think, where's think that? Alaska. Island, dude. So Russia, <laughs> Bering Strait, Alaska, and then come down through oh, Canada into America, which now America at the time was not. So what was it? That was his plan. <laughs> he got as far as Siberia when he was arrested on orders of Captain the Great, who said, get the fuck out of town. I want you out of my country. And really? so that was, but still. Why did, why off, did they not Kathy. want him there? Uh, they um, didn't like Europeans meddling in, mm. in Russia. So I'm surprised he even got that far. They still don't. They, yeah, still not fans. <laughs> not <Europe>. surprising. <laughs> Ledyard, however, when he applied for this gig to go find Timbuktu in Africa, he did not know a single word of Arabic. And in Northern Africa especially, that was kind of the lingua franca at the time of Africa, because Arab traders were mm-hmm. the main folks who were, did have contact with the interior Africa at the time, especially Northern Africa, and even Western Africa. Also, by the way, he had never been to Africa either, but you know, yeah. he had never been to America either, so, or he had never been to Russia. However, the African Association liked his, quote, adventurous nature, the manliness of his person, the breadth <laughs> of his chest, the inquietude of his eye. What does oh, that Lord. mean? What's he had big pegs. Yes. And, and he didn't talk a lot, which, okay, doesn't mean you're smart. It no. means you're a little bit stupid. Come on. Yes. And, and they just like the cut of his jib, man. They yeah. say, you know what? You pack it. You can do this. <laughs> yep. Bro, you look like a... I, I, there might have been some homoerotic things going on there. I don't uh, know. That, from the way that was ro- worded, little, I believe there was some bit. homoerotic mm-hmm. stuff going on. So when the association told him that they had okayed his trip, so he applies, they said, yep, you're a guy. They asked him, so when do you think you might be ready to leave? And he said, tomorrow morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> he just attached some headshots. He was like, yo, I want to do it, and put like a big glossy on top. And they were like, yes. Their, their response was, you know what? You might want to take some time planning this a little more. This is a big deal. Yeah. No, so, we have to hire no. a team and a uh, translator. And Food. I mean, a lot of shit eggs. has to happen. But, you know, John, John Ledyard, he's ready to go tomorrow I morning. guess. So they made him plan a little bit, and, and he finally left for England he was going to start in Cairo. I'm not sure why, because you always start from the West, from like what's now the Gambia or maybe Sierra Leone or someplace like that in West Africa. But he was going to start in Cairo. I don't know to what, what exactly he'd plan on doing there. But he, it took him six weeks just to get to Cairo. And then he, he, so he holds up in a hotel, whatever, and then it's kind of radio silence. The association doesn't hear from him. Finally, they get word on what happened to Ledyard. It turns out he came down with a, quote, bilious complaint 
Sure. I think it's something with this, uh, a tummy ache. Yeah. Oh. I think. That would okay. Be my, yeah. Billy he had, he had colic. Lay him on his left side. He'll be fine. Makes me think of Billy Rubin. No. None know. of this. No one knows what you're talking about. That's a liver. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Okay. Bilious complaint. So he tried to medicate himself mm-hmm. and what? Nausea vomiting. Yeah. Ooh. So he's not feeling well. So he figures, I'm as good a doctor as I am an explorer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to medicate myself. But he took sulfuric acid <gasps> to do so. And he took a little bit too much. So he died in a pool of vomit and blood. Oh, oh my gosh. In the hotel there in Cairo. <laughs> so he didn't get past Cairo. <laughs> wow. That's funny. <laughs> cause of death. Like, fucking dumb. <laughs> Intense stupidity. <laughs> That's funny. No matter though, thought Irish adventurer Daniel Hutton. He was sent next, and he got to the Gambia in West Africa, a natural place. It had a river. You can, you can take a while if you wanted to do that into um, West Africa. And he was there in 1791. But when he got to Gambia and was loading up, his supplies were completely destroyed out of fire. Ooh. And then whatever was left was stolen by the servant he had hired. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> not really his fault. No, not completely. Not completely. It's just bad luck. But he did. He, then he a guide came and said, "Oh, I hear you're going to. You want to go to Timbuktu? It's not that hard. It's a long way, but it's an easy trek. You'll get there. All you need really is a cane, <laughs> okay. a stick. I'm sorry, a stick. Uh, and so off he went. Went thinking he'd, he'd make a, a walk with a stick. That's 500 miles. That that. Timbuktu was expected to be. Remember, they didn't weren't completely sure exactly what Timbuktu was. They knew yeah. it was roughly somewhere. It was along the Niger, somewhere there in the interior well, of northern Africa. Why didn't he hire the guy that said it was an easy trek? The and guy probably didn't want to go with him because he's not an idiot because Houghton was set upon by bandits <laughs> and beaten to a pulp and left to die. Oh, <laughs> oh my oh. God. Did they take his stick? I'm sure they took his <laughs> stick. fucked up. I mean, that's, that's all he had. He's <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> So next was a young Scottish adventurer named Mungo Park, a oh, fantastic name. That's by a the great way. name. That'd be getting for a dog. Dib some baby names. I was <laughs> gonna <laughs> say Mungo Park. Somebody Mungo. name their child Mungo, Mungo please. Mungo Park. You. Like Mungo Jerry. Mungo yeah. Jerry. Mungo you know what? All your kids be Mungo and a different middle name. Boom. <laughs> Mungo Jean. Oh my god. <laughs> Mungo and Maud. God, Mom, yeah. your names. Ma- yeah. Our mother wants us to name our children like it's the really? 1800s. Oh, I like Matilda, Matilda too. Mungo, Mata, Matilda. Have Agatha. triplets. Perfect. Okay, could you imagine a, a, a kid named Mungo with his sister Matilda that has two moms? <laughs> they should get beat up. He'd be the coolest kid at school. Mm, no, he, I don't he, think you know how school works. Maybe in drama class, but that's about it. Oh my god! So uh, Mungo Park was hired to chart the course of, of the Niger River, which again the, the British really want to know where it went, where it unloaded, where it came into the ocean, its whole and, and its source. And they figured, you know, while you're at it, go ahead and, and also uh, find Timbuktu. And he said, "Sure, I'll do it." So he went to the, into the wilderness in 1795, but he returned shortly after he was captured, robbed, held prisoner, and tortured by a uh, Tuareg tribesman who will play a very prominent role in our story to come. Ooh, Toreg like the Volkswagen? Very much like the Volkswagen, named after a bloodthirsty tribe. Wow. <laughs> At this time, they were notoriously anti-anybody coming through their territory, and they'd kill and rob you at, for no reason whatsoever. Huh. Or, as a matter Volkswagen of decided to name yes, a vehicle after they them. They did, indeed. Nice. Uh, they're fine people now, I'm sure. <laughs> but at the time, not so much, at least not to Euros. In they had it coming. They kind yeah, of did. Stay in your lane. They sure, they sure did. Y'all Although had they a didn't whole know. continent up there. Just keep it. No, if you came by them with a camel and, and some cash, they were going to kill you and take it. They didn't really care who you were. 
Unless oh, you paid okay. them off. Typically, the Arab traders, the caravans would pay them off. Yeah. So in 1805, Park went again. So 10 years later, he went back into the African interior. Modern scholars think that he did indeed make it to Timbuktu this time. But he never got a chance to tell anyone, not surprisingly. He was under constant attack on the way back. He was in a canoe. And it just it, I've read the accounts of it. He essentially, every time they would pass by a tribe, some of the tribe would throw spears and attack them. Yeah. All the time. And, and he would just shoot first, ask questions later. He was constantly killing natives. Damn. Just, uh, because they Yikes. had these things called muskets. They're a little yeah. more powerful than spirits. And they would uh, kill lots and lots of Africans on the way back. Finally, though, they were ant they're attacked, and their canoe got stuck on a rock or something like that. And basically, it's just raining down arrows. They had no chance, so they jumped for it to swim to the opposite bank, and he drowned. Oh, and no. And that, that was it. So Mungo was dead. Side note, <laughs> Mungo Park's son, Thomas, Went searching for him in 1827. So 22 years later, he went searching for him. He mm -hmm. he thought that his dad was being still being held prisoner for 22 years. Oh yeah, yeah definitely being held prisoner. So uh, the son Thomas landed on the Guinea coast. He went just a few miles inland and then died of fever. Oh, so a fever. Africa is dangerous. Africa is very dangerous. White Especially Europeans. For dumbasses. Why so, didn't they learn their lesson? You'd, you'd think. Oh, believe me, we're not done. <laughs> <laughs> then it was Joseph Ritchie's turn in 1817. Now this whole endeavor was being overseen by the British Colonial Office. So it was. Remember, the African Association was a private group of interested people who wanted you know draw maps and also why they're at it. Maybe you know make it easier for the British government to colonize Africa. But now the, the British Colonial Office Government Agency took over any efforts to explore Africa. And so they sent Joseph Ritchie in 1817. Just to be safe, he got himself circumcised what? before he took the trip so what? he could pass as an Arab trader if he was captured and oh. apparently stripped. Because Muslim. Arabs, uh, Muslims circumcised themselves. He was not circumcised, so he got himself circumcised to pass as an Arab. Wow. If he had to. Good God. Or at least as a Muslim anyway. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. He, that's hey, commitment. Still fucked up, fucked up, doo doo baby, fucked up, doo doo grown man. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> well, that was not English. <laughs> fucked what up happened? to do it to a baby. Oh. oh. And it's fucked up to do it to a grown man. Fucked up, doo doo baby, fucked up, doo doo my man. Fucked up, doo doo come man. So. Yeah, I'm anti circumcision, uh, we, uh, as we, you all know. We're going to cut that out. So, the <laughs> government unfortunately only gave Richie 2,000 pounds for his entire expedition. That was ridiculously like insufficient. Benefits, Just really? Not nearly in, enough. In no. 1800 ish? I mean, this was, again, you had to have lots of people, camels, supplies to last. You're going to be there for a year, two, three years. You know, yeah. could be at least months gone. So it so was no to answer your question. No, no. it was considered like <laughs> that's ridiculous. And he spent most of the two thousand pounds while he was still in England on just useless shit. Just what? crap. Oh my god. When he got to Africa, he had seventy five pounds left. Oh yes. my god. <laughs> they're picking top notch yeah. individuals. Yeah. Something tells me they're not hiring the best no, and the brightest. No, none. So the little group he gathered. There in, I think he started, what did he start from? I don't remember, but uh, wherever he started from, he grabbed, he gathered a little group to go into the bush with almost no food they took with them. Remember, this wow. is, in, you're heading toward the Sahara Desert. After seven weeks, they were emaciated, starting to death, and just desperate. They Good were in God. terrible shape. Richie himself, he had a little hand mirror, like I guess a shaving mirror. He looked into the mirror and he saw that his tongue was black and <gasps> swollen. He, oh. always the optimist, thought it was just because he's drinking a lot of coffee. 
Oh what? my god! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> he died a week later. Oh. Of what? <laughs> Just starvation. Star, but what is a black tongue? <laughs> I don't he was. Of. He was not good. He's probably, he probably had no. You know, he wasn't getting vitamins, nutrients, mm-hmm. whatever. It, they again. They probably. I don't know. We'll have some rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was not a well planned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Clearly. Expedition. So he's gone. He's dead, and he had been jealously guarding several crates that had been marked "Do not open until Timbuktu." These big, heavy crates, right? They've been lugging them through the Western Africa all this time. And now they said, let's crack that open. Maybe that's stuff we can sell and trade for food and stuff like that, right? So they um, cracked them open and they found in them a supply of arsenic, a bunch of cork boards for pinning insects to, because he was a naturalist, Ah. a bunch of brown paper. No, don't don't know why. Hundreds of books. They're not light. Oh, my God. And 600 pounds of lead. Why? That they had no idea what it's for, what, intended, what he intended to do with it. No clue. And they I, had they had several camels carrying lead oh for no apparent reason. Oh my god! Oh my Sounds god! Like he might have had a little bit of an issue. He, yeah. He. he they, yeah. No one knows what he. What he. Maybe he had to some lead that. poisoning. <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah. Lead for him to suck on. <laughs> Jesus. We have to assume that they desecrated his body before they headed back to the coast, and I think wow. they made it. So during this period, by the way, there was. Um, some people who actually claim to have reached Timbuktu. Oh. One of them was a man named John Jackson. He was an Jackson. He was an English merchant. And he published a book called Account of Timbuktu, the Great Emporium of Central Africa in 1809. He described this great wealth, but also the ladies. Oh. Quote, the climate of Timbuktu is much extolled as being salutary and extremely invigorating. Insomuch that it is, it is impossible for the sexes to exist without intermarriage. In fact, when you're in Timbuktu, you just had to do it. Every man, he said, had multiple wives and some concubines on the side. And if you reached puberty without being married, you were shamed. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. That was his account of Timbuktu. Yeah. Turns out he's fucking. That was the subtitle. He was completely full of shit. He had never been in Timbuktu, of course. Yeah. And... The same is true for another American named Robert Adams, who claimed in 1812, he claimed an 1812 visit to Timbuktu. Many years later, he said he'd been a slave in Northern Africa, and he wrote about it many years later in a, in a book, but his description of Timbuktu when people finally got there was wildly inaccurate, so we know he was full of shit as well. His memoirs were utter bullshit, and I'm sure a bestseller, so, you know. Nice. Plus a change as the French say. Sure. Oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. It was not just the English, though, who were trying to find Timbuktu. A, a guy named Giovanni Belzoni, he was an Egyptologist from Venice. He tried also. He set off from the coast of what is now Benin, which is just west of Africa and kind of on the, the, the southern part of that big hump of West Africa. 10 miles into the bush, he dropped dead from dysentery. <laughs> Oh, which means basically you shit yourself to death. Yeah, damn, that sucks. That'd be are, a hard way to go out. Are you hungry or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you okay? Yeah. I'm fine. I just had a well, cookie. Could you that? <laughs> <laughs> so realizing that future explorers might need a little more incentive because luck was not good. This is not yeah. a good story to tell. Hey, want to go to Timbuktu? By this time, it's like you know it. Hard yeah. pass. So the French society. The French. <laughs> The French and their markets. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the French. Happy now? Is that better? <laughs> Society de, de Geographie. <laughs> they offered a 10,000 franc prize 
in 1824 for the first non-Muslim to reach Timbuktu and then live to tell about it. Just... <laughs> no, discriminatory well it is but remember <laughs> at this time muslims were going to timbuktu all the time it was no big deal for them it's like yeah. okay just come with us idiots so in 1828 a french explorer named rene cailly or cali caillou <laughs> actually we know this one c-a-i-l-l-i-e caillou yeah. he disguised himself as a muslim and went by himself with no money from the French government, and he got to Timbuktu, came back, claimed to 10,000 francs. Vive la France! Well, so was that for it? real or no? He, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but he he got his passport stamped? We'll I get mean, back to that later. Okay. Uh, but, and also, how did he disguise himself? Did it, this also involve circumcision? I, I don't know. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Hey, you know? let me check your penis. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, you check out. So before that, though, there was a slightly less successful expedition led by a 30-year-old Scottish adventurer named Alexander Gordon Lang. His tragically absurd tale is what we're going to talk about now. Okay. <laughs> what? The epilogue? Like that? that was a long lead in. Yes, yes. Oh. That was, I want to tell you about Timbuktu. Okay, about, but I thought... Like, I'm, the, setting the, I'm setting the, the scene for Lang. I know. It's just funny because the way... It, I thought this was like we were just going to talk about like all the people's... No, so did I. No, 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 we got to start like here. like a movie when you like... This is disc one, and then disc two. <laughs> the entire first act is set up, right? Okay. Apparently. So Alexander Gordon Lang, let's learn a little bit about him, because Carrie likes that kind of thing. Okay. He mm-hmm. was born in Edinburgh in 1794. His father was a private tutor, but also a classic scholar at the University of Edinburgh. And he homeschooled Alex. By 1811, at age 17, Lang went to work as a clerk for his uncle, Colonel Gabriel Gordon, on the island of Barbados in the Caribbean. Mm, So he's just 17. He said, you know what? Get the fuck out of here. Go work for your uncle. In 1813, the governor of Barbados used his influence to get Lang a position as an ensign in the York Light Infantry Volunteers. And then he later became a a lieutenant without purchase. No idea what that means. I didn't (laughs) look it up. He doesn't have to buy his own uniform. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, No. Maybe so. I don't know. In 1815, this was. That unit was disbanded. So he was transferred to the 2nd West India Regiment in 1817. Then, that's his background. What, what's wrong? Mom's what? stomach. Did you hear it again? There's a okay, concert off, going on. <laughs> really? Can you control your tummy rumbling? Yes, I can, as a matter of fact. <laughs> tummy rumbling. Okay, we, won't, we just won't laugh yeah, again. Ignore her. I need to put the microphone right next down to my stomach. You really don't. You really don't. You ready? Uh, yeah. Then fate intervened. In 1822, in 1822, <laughs> again. in 1822, Lang was transferred to the Royal African Colonial Corps oh, with okay. the rank of captain. Mm. He was stationed in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. He was sent into Mandinka country to establish trade and abolish the slave trade. Oh, interestingly enough, noble. Yeah, Good Britain job. was by this time. Britain was becoming anti-slavery, and yes, they uh, were. The Arabs controlled the slave trade anyway. So they <laughs> might as well abolish it because they weren't making money off of it. And this appears to be when the exploration bug infected Alex. He found the source of the Roquel River in what is now Sierra Leone, and he decided he was going to find the source of the Niger River, which was a much bigger river system. And again, as I mentioned earlier, a, a key goal. It was up there that the finding the source of the Niger was 
second to finding the source of the Nile River in you know importance of exploring Africa. It was considered critical. You want to control that, and you can theoretically control that river system, which would be the main trade route. That yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's critical that the, these river systems were very important to the these the Europeans. It was, it was a big deal to find the, find the Niger. Alex made the rank of major, and he fought in the Ashanti War in 1824, which, by the way, there's a story about that that we'll have to do one of these days. Then he went back to England because he was sent, he was sent back to England with a note to tell the English that the governor of Sierra Leone had been killed by the Ashanti, mm. and we would need a new one. <laughs> and while he was there, he wrote up his memoirs of what he'd done so far in Africa, and he titled it Travels in the Timini... Kurnako and Sulima countries in Western Africa. It was very well received. Mm-hmm. But Timbuktu beckoned to young Alex. The British colonial office was not going to give up on this. They still wanted to find Timbuktu. But unfortunately for everybody, but fortunately for this story, the head of the British colonial office at this time in 1824 was Lord Henry Bathurst. Ever heard of him? No. Me no. He thought he was smarter than everyone else. Everyone had always tried to reach Timbuktu from the west coast. The west coast of Africa, it was guessed that it was roughly 500 miles inland to the east and a little to the south. Think of the Sahara, it's right on the southern edge of the Saharan desert, at least now the Sahara has grown since then, but it was in, you know, at the time, relative, not well watered, but not, don't think horrific desert, but north of yeah. it was, you know, the, the unlivable Sahara desert. And so he thought, you know what? Everybody wants to come from that way, but you know what? That's on them. Wouldn't it be smarter to start from the northern coast of Africa and head south? Sure, this meant crossing the vast, sun-drenched Sahara Desert, one of the most forbidding places on the planet, but he figured that's not that hard. Here's the plan. You'll get a caravan, get some camels, and you'll just oasis hop all the way through the Sahara until you got down to Timbuktu. And what would make him think that was even possible? Because he is smarter than everyone else. Because he's like Oasis is out there, like fucking yeah. Seven <laughs> <laughs> just conveniently spaced uh, out. I mean, truck the, stops. In his defense, you knew that these trade caravans were, were doing the Sahara all the time, were crossing the Sahara regularly, and they did use Oasis. No, the Europeans didn't know where they were, but he figured, you know, we'll hire someone who's well, doing one of those, and okay. they'll know where the Oasis are, and we'll just Oasis hop, boom, 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 boom north to south, across the Sahara. Everybody's trying it from the obvious way. You know what? We're going to mix this up a little bit. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like a foolproof yeah. plan. He thought the it obvious was, way wasn't working. So That's true. That's true. He thought it was smart. Everybody else thought he was an idiot, and they thought it was absolutely undoable. Fortunately, though, for Bathurst, fate brought him the young Alexander Gordon Lang. Lang was, mm. was itching for more African adventures at this time. I guess he wanted to write another book, probably. His fellow officers in where he was stationed were not sad to see him go because they thought he was a smug, insufferable douchebag. He thought of himself, though, much, much more highly. (laughs) He thought he was this dashing, he had a slim physique, his wavy hair, and he had spectacular mutton chops. Nice. Beautiful mutton chops. Uh, How was the quietude of his eyes? (laughs) And he, yes, I'm sure it was there in quiet. (laughs) He also fancied himself a poet. But and he, I guess he would publish them in some little magazines, and his, his commanding officer wrote, his military exploits are even worse than his poetry. Ooh. <laughs> so he didn't yeah. have it. But still, he agreed with Bathurst, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll go north to south. You're genius. Let me, let me do it for you. So he applied 
to Bathurst. And if anyone told Bathurst that Lang was a lousy officer or had a, quote, delicate constitution, and, by the way, was convinced that the Niger River flowed into the Gulf of Benin, which everybody knew was not true, then they didn't tell Bathurst these things about uh, young Alexander Gordon Lang. So we don't know. We don't know how much he knew about him, but he accepted his application probably because no one else wanted to do it and die. So Bathurst, too, by the way, was, quote, impressed with his command of the facts, the acuity of his intellect, his courage, and his poise. All you had to do was yeah. talk some shit, and apparently you got the gig yeah. at this point. Nice. If you look the part, you're going to be sent off to Africa to your demise. But yeah. get Add a bonus, Lang offered to forego a salary while on the expedition, and his budget for it, 640 pounds <gasps> to build oh. the entire expedition, and it would only uh, take 173 pounds per year for expenses while on safari. So basically low is bitter. Very much low is bitter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yikes. What Lang lacked in experience, sense, judgment, and competence, he made up for though in competence. He, he said he would both find the source of the Niger River and he would find Timbuktu. And he said later on he'd write that if he couldn't find Timbuktu, no one ever would. Oh, So he's a cocky asshole. Yeah. <laughs> So off Lang went, he, he landed first on the island of Malta, that's in the Mediterranean, as you know, north of Libya. Mm-hmm. Once there, he immediately got sick and was laid up for a month. Oh, gosh. Of course. This is, this is that time, though, remember, where these upper crust fops would mm-hmm. get a slight headache mm-hmm. and be bedridden for a month and a half under a doctor's care in their yeah. house. So, you know, it, it's hard to take that very seriously. But he finally got to Tripoli, and there he contacted the British consul. His name was Hanmer Warrington. By the way, another great first name. Don't Henmer. 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 H a n m e r. Yeah, it's a cool, cool name. Not as good as Mungo. <laughs> no, not, not nearly as good as Mungo. He was a big guy, big personality. He had seen many these aristocratic, you know, explorers, English explorers, set off into Africa. Many of them never coming back. So he was kind of very worldly. He liked Ling. He took a liking to him. I mean, he's got poise, right? He's got yeah. dashing good looks, but. He wrote back to Bathurst that Lang still seemed sickly to him and didn't seem well enough to go into the interior. Then he found out how much money he had been budgeted to do it, and he thought, oh, he's mentally ill. I yeah. mean, literally, he's insane. He can't do that. He will die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still, he wished Lang well and liked him, that is, until he started chasing Warrington's daughter, Emma. <gasps> oh, yep. that's money. Within weeks of arriving in Tripoli, he had proposed to Emma. It's always some bitch named Emma. <laughs> yep, yep. Warrington was not happy. Mm-hmm. He figured Lang was insane, A, <laughs> and B, he would certainly die in the desert. So worse yet, they wanted to get married right away before Lang left. Not like, let's get betrothed, and when you get back, you'll because you're going to get back. Yeah. You can marry my daughter. Now, when we marry right now, before. Because they wanted to have sex, that's why. Yeah, probably, but as we'll find out, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. Oh. Uh, worse still, Warrington was the only Englishman in Tripoli who could legally marry them. So he would have to marry this couple that he did not want to get married, yeah. his daughter. Damn. So there's a, lot, there's a delay. He was kind of hemming and hawing and trying to persuade his, his daughter against doing it. But he finally came around when Emma poisoned herself <laughs> she lived but oh. she poisoned herself and basically if i can't marry my oh, beloved God. alexander then i'm gonna die some real juliet shit yes. right there yes. respect yes, 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 yes. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> she probably took like God. eight aspirin i don't know <laughs> he agreed daddy agreed to marry them so he had one condition though he said they could not consummate the marriage 
until it was blessed by an actual Anglican priest. He knew there were no Anglican <sighs> priests in Libya, mm-hmm. in Tripoli, so they have ah. to wait to get it on until he got back. They said, okay. <laughs> wow. never, he is mentally ill. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they got married on July 14th, 1825. Oh, hey. Oh. Now, all it's going to take is a quick trip to Timbuktu across the Sahara to a place he had never been to and didn't actually not know where it was. And then he'd come back and, and nail Emma, his virgin <laughs> bride. He left four days after the wedding with the bluest balls in the history of <laughs> African exploration. So the expedition on, on the cheap had like a, just a few camels, had a few assistants, some servants, a slave named Bongala, because remember, so he had a slave, yeah. a, little, a little hypocritical. He had a Caribbean, a loyal Caribbean servant named Jack Labor. Nice. They had two African ship's carpenters named Roger and Harry. I'm sure not their real names. So there's an Emma and a Jack in this there's story? There's an Emma and Jack, yes. Nice. Roger and Harry, the carpenters, they were there because they're going to, when they found the Niger, because they were certain to do it. Yeah. They had built some canoes, I guess, and, yeah. and be helpful then. Until then, they're dead weight. Wow. And two camel drivers. They also had a Jewish interpreter named Abraham Nahoon. And then they left Tripoli, and just outside the gates, this guy's waiting for him and said, Hey, where are you heading? Timbuktu. Okay, I can help. My name's Sheik Babani. Babani said, I'll get you to Timbuktu in 10 weeks. I mean, lightning speed. For four thousand Spanish dollars, Lang said, shook his hand, agreed, and he sent Bathurst the bill back to England, who shit his pants because that was more than quadruple yeah. the total budget of mm-hmm. the entire expedition. Mm-hmm. So I guess that was his plan: I'll lowball him, and then I'll just spend it, yeah. <laughs> send the bill. I don't Good know. God, maybe. So he's got Sheik Babani on the trail, and off they go. Now he sets off in the desert, and luckily he would write a series of letters on the way there, he'd send back with messengers, right? And he would write letters to both Warrington and Emma in Tripoli. Sometimes they were sketches, sometimes they were love poems, but very often they were just this like unhinged bitching about other European explorers in Africa. He just hated all of them. He thought they're idiots and he was better than all of them, right? Mm -hmm. He had a special enmity toward Hugh Clapperton, despite he had never met Hugh Clapperton. The reason, you ask? Mm -hmm. Well, he found out just before leaving, he found out that the colonial office was hedging his bet. They had authorized a second expedition, unknown to Lang, oh. to Timbuktu, to be led by Clapperton. Clapperton was now on his way to Africa, and he was going to do the much smarter thing and go from the normal way from West Africa, which is only said to be about 500 miles, whereas it's more like 2,000 miles from North Africa. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a long ass Holy way. crap. And so, so now was, it's like a race. It's kind of a race, yeah. And, and, so he used to take this shorter, shorter route. So even though he was leaving later, he was going to have a huge advantage there. Yeah. Copperton was also far more experienced than Lang. He had you know, done uh, more expeditions in Africa than Lang had. Lang really had just done that one. And, and Lang, of course, resented this. And, oh, I'm sorry. And Clapperton resented that they'd okayed the Lang expedition because he thought he was a young idiot. Mm-hmm. So, because, as we know, competition always brings up the best in us. The colonial office wrote to both Clapperton and Lang telling them of the other's progress. Oh, yeah. It's just a, a super dick move. They also then, because they believe in irony, told the two of them to cooperate and share notes. <laughs> well, it's, you know, mixed message maybe? Yeah. But also, bit. how could they possibly do that? You could write. You, you, uh, yeah, I know. How, I don't know how they could do it. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess you, you could send a note to Tripoli and then messages, because remember, they're just sort of slowly leaving Tripoli. Yeah. And to... Um, OAC. So remember, he was able to write letters back well into his journey. Really? Yeah. 
So uh, uh, Clapperton interpreted this as, you know what I'll do? I'll just tweak this little asshole. And I'll, I'll, he started writing him letters and giving him tips like, hey, youngster, here's some things you should remember. And there are things like, adopt native costume at all times and do not meddle with the females of the country. So he was just like patronizing yeah. and Lang was, would get these things and just get flying to a rage. Very emotional. <laughs> he was, Lang also, by the way, he, he was donning, quote, playing Turkish dress while in the desert to kind of fit in and, and, and with the climate, except on Sundays. On Sundays, he went to his full military regalia, oh, and military ro- uniform, his full military uniform, because, you know, God, yeah. I guess. I'm thinking. God's watching. God's watching. I better dress up for God. So now because Lang was entirely sane, at, uh, at one oasis, the first oasis he reached, he wrote asking Warrington for a picture of Emma, or he, quote, might go mad. Mm. So Warrington sent him a recent picture of Emma, this is 1824 or five rather by this time they didn't have photography i've read that i'm thinking so was it a quick sat down and painted Did someone do a sketch of her (laughs) i don't know i don't know i'm not sure what that means but they sent a portrait to him that arrived a little later but in it it said that emma looked pale kind of just pale and sickly and he thought oh my god is she sick i'm freaking out and he wrote, so he wrote a letter back to Warrington and said, that's it, I'm coming back. Oh I've got to go take, take care of my wife. Emma needed him. Warrington quickly got a letter back to him saying, no, 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 no. She's fine. She's really rooting for you to reach Timbuktu. You keep going. I, I'm pretty sure he not only expected but wanted Warrington to die. He'd rather yeah. have a, a, a widow than a, yeah. a daughter married to a crazy dude. So he, he still was, was kind of hemming and hawing. Should I go? Should I stay? But then he saw a comet up in the night sky. He said, that's it. That's a sign. He said, quote, I regard it as a happy omen. It beckons me on and binds me to the termination of the Niger and to Timbuktu. And then he later got word that Clapperton's expedition was faltering. So he said, that's it. He was spurred on. Boom. So they're going through the, the, the desert, the vast Sahara, trying to do this oasis hopping. The temperature got as high as 49 degrees Celsius. Which is? It's like 120. Just, yeah. just oh, sweltering heat every day. Yeah, just brutal heat. It was more, he, he'd write that this isn't, you know, no European can withstand this heat. Yeah. Except mm-hmm. him, apparently. At, at one point, they went without food for a week. Their water got so hot it almost boiled in their goat skin pouches, and it, it would turn kind of muddy and rancid Ooh. when they drank it. But, you know, yeah. don't have a lot of choice, though. And the food they brought, the main food they brought, were these rank, nasty, stink, sort of like, like, um, Dried f- patties of dried fish and camel's milk. Ew. That was yuck. their primary, you know, road food. Yuck. Today we have Doritos. So yeah. it would be yeah. a very Ugh. different environment. Cheese, it's baby. Mm-hmm. The route they took was, it was very winding also. It added hundreds of miles to, to their, um, what would have been a more, a, a less circuitous route because they are trying to dodge bandits. Again, the Tuaregs were notorious here and very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So they finally got to this tiny oasis town called Gadamas in eight weeks. Oh. And when it was supposed to be 10 weeks the whole way. And they were, but they were so tired and sickly there when they got there that they spent two months recuperating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Gadamas is still at least a thousand miles from where they oh thought Timbuktu was. Wow. So yeah, they're a little behind that 10 week schedule. Yeah. Now it's what? It's now four months at the end of that period. So no worries, Lang thought. 
He wrote to Warrington from Godamas and said, quote, I shall do more than has ever been done before and shall show myself to be what I have ever considered myself, a man of enterprise and genius. <laughs> my father, this is, this is my favorite part, my father used often to accuse me of want of common sense, <laughs> but he little, thought, little, he little thought that I gloried in the accusation. <laughs> oh, he was the original stable genius. Yeah. yeah whose God. dad knew he was fucking nuts. <laughs> And told him so, and he's like, thank you. <laughs> I like him. So five months later, he reached Sala, an oasis town in what's now Algeria. It was December of 1825. So the Tuareg tribes who ruled kind of the, the whole area, they regularly preyed on travelers, and they demanded money for safe passage. But lately, their raids had been more frequent and more deadly. So at this time in Salah, there were many, like dozens of Arab traders who, again, regularly crossed the area, sort of hunkered down because it was too dangerous in their mind. Who They did it all the time to go out there. And they were kind of waiting for the threat to die down, right? Not Alexander. Do you think Alexander Gordon Lang is going to wait forever? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm guessing not. No, 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 no. He had braved the heat and all that deprivation so far. He figured, you know what? Screw it. I'm not he waited a little while and then said, I'm not going to wait any longer. Come on, you guys. Let's go. They all said, hard pass. We're staying <laughs> until things get a little, little less dicey. So he wasn't able to convince any of the Arab traders to go with him. So... He set out alone with his oh. little expedition in January of 1826. Some of the Arab traders were embarrassed by this. It's like, okay, this Christian idiot European is going to yeah. go out there and we're not. Come on, guys. So af just after he left, a caravan of 45 men and 100 camels joined Lang's little group on January 9, kind of figuring safety in numbers, let's go for it. So they kind of combined yeah. caravans into one larger caravan, right? So they're heading south. And over the Sahara, and just this is the weird part. Just they're, they're, you know, think of a caravan going over the desert, and just suddenly some Tuareg tribesmen can start to sort of ride up and join your little caravan. They just kind of melted into their midst and sort of, sort of escorting them almost. They and they have these blue robes, these deeply dyed blue robes that cover their entire bodies except for eye slits. Yeah, they are totally adapted for the for the ter terrain there, and they're very heavily armed. So no one trusted him and no one wanted him there, but no one yeah. <laughs> was going to go tell yeah. them to leave. It's kind of like if you're having a house party and gangbangers start showing up at your house party and no one's going to go tell yeah. them to leave. But at, in, in this situation, there, there aren't any police force that you could go upstairs Sneak and secretly call to <laughs> bust your own party up. So mm -hmm. they just had to keep an eye on them and hope they were, weren't up to no good. Yeah. The so the, the Targs shadowed the caravan for about three weeks until finally they reached this nasty little mosquito-ridden oasis called Wadi Anet. It's one of the oases, but it was one of the shittier ones <laughs> on the route. They set up camp, and they, you know, rest and rewater for a little while, right? So in early February, though, it happened. Poor Alexander. This, uh -oh. is, this is also my favorite part. Oh. In the dead of night, it's February 20, 1826, the early February, the dead of night, the, um, the Tuaregs attack Alexander Gordon Lang. Yeah. They first, they fired two musket volleys into his tent, and then they rushed in, swords flashing. Hell yeah. Swap, chop, 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 chop. <laughs> Slap chop his ass. <laughs> they hacked and slashed until Lang stopped moving. Oh. Good God. When the servants tried to stop the Tuaregs, they attacked them. Jack Labor and the slave Belonga wisely fled into the dunes and hid for the night. The Tuaregs 
attacked no one else, none of the other parties in the caravan except for Lang. And no one from the huh. caravan lifted a finger to try to, to try to help them. Why the attack, you wonder? Why Lang? Turns out that trustworthy Sheikh Babani, yeah, he had made a little secret bargain, struck a secret bargain with the Tuaregs that he said, basically, here you go, I'll hand him over to you, I'll step aside, you, and you, steal, you kill him, steal everything, and you give me a share of the loot. That was the idea. So they did that. They thought they killed him, and they took everything, and they rode off. They did, they did not lift a finger. They did not touch anyone else in the uh, caravan. Our plucky Scott, though, he lived. Wow. As did one of the camel drivers, some of the servants, and a couple of the camels. They took everything <laughs> else, and everybody else who fled or was dead. The rest of the caravan, the non laying caravan, they left. Oh, of course. <laughs> you, you can nurse your little little uh, explorer captain while we're, we're going to go. And Was he horrifically injured? Oh, or my God. I'm going to describe it in detail. Well, actually, he's going to go. describe okay. it in detail. So undeterred, Lang would have his men strap him to a camel. And to, to, they had two camels left. So he, they strapped him to one of the camels. The camel driver took the other one and led him and led the few remaining folks into the desert to, to, re, to continue the, the 400 miles left for Timbuktu. Wow. So think about this. Now, now it's time for another letter. At this point, he sent a letter to Warrington and telling him that he was writing with his thumb and middle finger of, of his left hand because the only parts of his body uninjured enough that he could hold a pen with. Oh, my God. Quote, to begin from the top, I have five saber cuts on the crown of the head and three on the left temple, all fractures from which bone has come away. Whoa. So nice start. Strong start. Well, okay, so he's got some skull popping out? Yes, not he Not protecting a whole lot. No, <laughs> no at all. Uh, not, not at all. So he, they literally hacked his head with their well, swords. Yeah. Do we believe his account of Hunter Burst? Sure. I think we do. <laughs> okay. He went on that he also had a cut, quote, on my left cheek, which fractured the jawbone and had divided the ear, forming a very unsightly wound. I bet. Yeah. One over the right temple and a dreadful gash on the back of the neck, which slightly grazed the windpipe. <laughs> a musket ball in the hip, which made its way through my back, slightly grazing the backbone. Five saber cuts on my right arm and hand, three of the fingers broken. The hand cut three-fourths across. So his hand barely stayed on. And the wrist bones cut through. Three cuts uh, on the left arm. I'm... The bone of which has been broken, but is again uniting. One slight wound on the right leg, and two with one dreadful gash on the left. To say nothing of a cut across the fingers of my left hand, now healed up. He, he ended the letter with an aside. It's like a, like a P.S. Oh, by the way, I also caught the plague, and I was so sick, quote, it was presumed, expected, and hoped that I would die. <laughs> so that's his story. You know, uh, Bongola, well, I sh I'm not going to get ahead. Okay. But there is a reason to believe this was true. He okay. was horrifically injured. Because the other traders, the other caravan folks are like, what the fuck? Go home. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, nope. Nope. I'm going to Timbuktu, strap me to the camel. Let's go. Wow. Let's do this. I'll school out and everything. So he was a badass. I, I mean, the mutton chops. Wow. Yeah. Remember the boys? He, he the... looks like um, Rickety Cricket from Always Sunny. <laughs> yes, he's, worse than, <laughs> he's worse than Cricket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was determined. So. He got to a town called Azad. It was another one of those small oases. And there, the Arab chief named Sheikh Mokhtar was actually kind of friendly. 
probably felt bad for him. Was like, oh yeah. my god, yeah, yeah come in. <laughs> Lang was there for three months recuperating from his wounds. That's wow. how his gruesome okay. injuries were, were horrific. So sadly, when he was starting to heal up, dysentery swept through the town. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it killed Jack Lavore, his trusty servant for the Caribbean. It also killed the, the last carpenter that he had left, and it killed Sheikh Mokhtar. Oh. So Lang, of course, got dysentery, but lived, naturally, because mm-hmm. he was Lang. Jeez. The uh, last camel driver left, named, named Hamet, he had had enough. He took one of the camels and went home. Only now the slave Bongola was left to accompany Lang the rest of the way to Timbuktu. It was Aww. he, his slave, and a camel. I'm guessing Bongola walked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Lang and Mongola rode. Like maybe they got another camel. Maybe someone, the, maybe the sheikh said, you know what? Here's a second camel. You're not make it, but eh, come on. <laughs> So they rode the remaining hundreds of miles to Timbuktu, and they arrived in Timbuktu on August 13th, 1826. So having figured they need about 10 weeks to get there, 13 months. Not bad. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, you know, it's not Say, terrible. You know, a little extra time. But at least they had reached this storied city of glory, this lost metropolis, this fabulously wealthy Timbuktu, right? They were there. Yeah. Not exactly. Timbuktu was past its prime. Mm. way past its prime. Really, its zenith had been in the Middle Ages, hundreds of years ago. The great Manza Musa, who was at the time possibly the, probably the richest man in the world mm-hmm. in the early 1300s, he had ruled Timbuktu back then at its zenith. And in 1324, Musa had rode to Mecca with 12,000 slaves dressed in silk and 80 camels carrying gold for his gift to Allah once he got to Mecca. Wow. So he just, wow, I remember, I've heard that story. He, he went through Cairo and it's like, what the fuck? So Timbuktu, so this kind of solidified this, this reputation in Timbuktu as being fabulously wealthy. And scholars, it's true, mm. it's true, it was very wealthy. It was a critical trade junction and it was also a center of scholarly learning of, of Muslim scholars and had, it had vast libraries. So all that stuff was true, but it was a long time ago. Couple thousand huh. years. Yeah, a couple Hundred years. Hundred years. years ago, it had withered since then. It had been conquered by Moroccans. Its trade network was disrupted by foreigners and invaders and ocean options, right? Maritime options of, of trade. So it's now just this kind of relic frontier town. The only thing that's left was really everybody lived in these dusty mud brick hovels. No more gleaming spires. No more libraries. No more palaces. That was all gone. It was a, it was a crappy little frontier town on kind of a bend of the Niger River south of the Sahara in what's Damn. now Mali. Hmm. So, got to be disappointing. But Lang, remember, he's mentally ill. So he wrote back, <sighs> quote, the great capital of Central Africa has completely met my expectations. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he was just okay with lying because he figured no one's going to come back here yeah. for a long time. So, I, or, or maybe, honestly, he was setting the stage for another book. Another bestseller. Yeah. I mean, he's mm-hmm. a memoir. And as we know, mm-hmm. to this day, memoirs are 97% bullshit. So, or maybe he was really insane and it didn't meet his expectations. So, the, the latter option, the crazy part, that may be true if you think about what he did. So, he got there and he rented a hut on the outskirts of town, right? Then he would dress in his full military regalia and strut through the street and telling anyone who would stop and listen to him that he was the personal emissary of the King of England and he was here on a mission. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was a crazy European. Yeah. Going, uh-huh, okay, we have to go. <laughs> <laughs> then at night, 
he'd get a horse and he'd ride around the countryside at night just looking around, which was yeah. amazingly dangerously stupid. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is you're in the town, you're probably safe there, but there's yeah. dangerous people everywhere around you. It, it was considered very reckless. The locals were like, he's crazy. Yeah. And he thought he would also, he wanted, he was going to the library every day and studying the books that were left and the libraries that were left. But remember, he didn't speak any Arabic, so I'm not sure yeah. how, how much progress he was he making. He was holding them upside down. <laughs> Looking at the pictures. <laughs> Reading the wrong way. He planned to stay for six months, but the crazy stuff he was doing wore out his welcome much, much, much sooner than that. So the Sultan of Bella was the ruler of Timbuktu at the time, and he had got word, hey, there's this crazy English guy doing some shit, and we don't like him, and so Sultan Bella said, okay, and word got out to uh, Lang that the Sultan, you were persona non grata. You should leave. And showing this little spark of sanity that we haven't seen yet, <laughs> he wrote to Warrington that he was, quote, exceedingly unsafe in Timbuktu and he would be leaving in three days. <laughs> so he, this is the first time he did something slightly Smart, rational. Yeah. yeah. And, but he said he'd bring back, quote, much important geographical information, <laughs> but no gold. Much important. Yes. So he ended the letter by saying he would return home to the south. So he was going to travel south to Sierra Leone, where the English had a port, and which was much, 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 actually a, a smart thing to do. Yeah. Much easier. He can also maybe ex- look around for the Niger River if he did that. And, and presumably he would then get passage back to Tripoli when he got to Sierra Leone, right? That was the last anyone ever, ever heard of Alexander yeah. Gordon Lang. Because apparently that whole, I'm going to go the south route, was a ruse. I don't know if he thought he was being spied on or or he thought someone would read his letter before it was sent away or what, or maybe intercept it. But no, he immediately, he went north on September 22nd, 1826. He left Timbuktu in a small entourage of traders. He's at least going with some, some folks who knew the way around. So I guess, you know, finding the whole Niger river was, was forgotten, but Hey, he, he had to get back to Emma. Okay. (laughs) All right. He was, he was ready. I think you know what I'm saying. So, Three days, so he goes with this little group of traders and he hired a local guide named Amadou Labeda to sort of be kind of ride shotgun with him, be his kind of protector and be his official guide, right? Three days into the trip though, he found out the hard way that Labeda was actually an ally of Sultan Bello, who as we remember, did mm. not like Lang. Mm-hmm. And there are various versions of what went down three days into the trip. One is that there were two Tuareg riders on either side of him, as they're you know, just loping along in the camels, heading back, nothing to see here, no worries. And they kind of you know, went there on either side. And then I guess the story is Lang had this long flowing turban around his neck and the two tribesmen <gasps> grabbed either end of it, yanked and strangled him right as he's riding uh, along on camelback. Oh and my then they God. knocked him off the camel, decapitated him and left the body for the vultures. That is horrific. That's one version. Oh, okay. Another version is that Lang, Bongola, his slave who's still with him, and an Arab boy were resting under a tree when Labeda, you know, the caravan's got to stop here. Let's have a pit stop. There's some trees here. They're resting peacefully under a tree. And Labeda and three thugs suddenly came up and said, you need to convert to Islam right now. He said, I'm not going to do that because he's Lang. He's a, he's a mm-hmm. badass. Remember, he's got mutton chops. He refused, so two of the thugs grabbed both of Lang's arms and Labeda drove a spear right into the, his body. Then the last thug chopped up his head. They then killed the Arab boy too, but Bongola luckily escaped. This, this story, though, was told 80 years later to a French officer 
by a man who claimed to be uh, Labeda's nephew. So most people think it's complete nonsense. Yeah. It's just made up. Version three was actually told by Bongola, the slave, who finally made his way back to Tripoli two years later in 1828. Wow. This version has Labeda and several thugs just simply attacking Lang and his little group in the dead of night. They attacked with knives. They stabbed Lang to death. They stabbed the Arab boy to death, too, as both of them slept. Bongola got the hell out of there, was able to escape, and then came back the next day, found Lang's body mutilated and decapitated, and he buried it. Bangola did, as I mentioned, reach Tripoli in 1828, and he uh, um, told Warrington, still consul there, what had happened to his son-in-law, his insane missing son-in-law. <laughs> that, by the way, was the same year that René Cali, the lone Frenchman disguised as an Arab trader, had walked into Timbuktu and walked out and got back again. While Cali was there, he asked about Lang because this was no like the, you know this is like what happened to Lang he was going for Timbuktu it was, it was yeah. well known so he asked about Lang and, and the locals showed him the mud hut that he had rented they also um, gave him a compass that was supposed to be Lang's and they pointed out his grave site under a tree out, outside of mm. town but there was no sign of Lang's journal which it was known that he had been writing the entire time yeah so he couldn't find that the French were typically magnanimous as they always are they declared Khalid that the first European to reach Timbuktu, it said, quote, that which England has not been able to accomplish with the aid of a whole group of travelers and an expense of more than 20 millions of francs, a Frenchman has done with his scanty personal resources alone without putting his, putting his country to any expense. Go so, off, France. The British said, okay, fuck you. We think he's lying. We think it's a hoax. We think, as a matter of fact, that Khalid somehow found... Lang's journal, I got a hold of Lang's journal, and just use that to describe Timbuktu, which proved to be accurate. Yeah. This description of Timbuktu. So we think he's lying and that our guy was the first to get there. Maybe he didn't get back, but still, he yeah. got there. And so that's where it stood. We don't know. No one knows to well, this day. But did the French guy say that they didn't show him his hut and? No, he said he, they showed him his hut. I know, so they can't claim that he didn't get there, that Lang didn't get there. I, why not? Who, no one's going back to ask the people who, who saw Kali there. Can remember, yeah. no one's going to Timbuktu. It's re, probably wasn't revisited for years. No, but you said he, he said that he got to Timbuktu and the Timbuktuans yes. showed, oh, showed, him, showed him Lang's, yes, Lang's hut. But remember that the, so the, then they, the goal was to go there and get back, he, and Lang didn't oh, get back. Oh, okay. So no 10,000 French. So they got there. He just didn't make it back. Yeah, exactly. And the French were very proud of that. And so the British were pissed. So they said, your French guy's lying. Yeah, okay. So back in Tripoli, Emma was told the news and was crushed. Oh, poor Emma. They probably described how it happened too in bloody detail, I imagine. (laughs) So she eventually did remarry. She moved to Italy. But it was said that she was always in this deep funk. Wow. She was never happy again. She was very depressed, and she died of tuberculosis in Pisa in 1829. She was only 28 wow. years old. Wow, yeah. yeah. Damn, I have now, a hard life. Now, let's cast the movie. Go. Me as Emma, okay. of course, uh, duh. Right. You get to die in Pisa. That's, That's fine. That's fine. Okay. Um, you get a fake a poison. To, to marry this insane yeah. guy with mutton shots, but that's fine if that's what you oh, want to do. Who else would I play? I suppose. I have yeah. to be in it yeah. somewhere. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, who's, uh, who's, who's Alexander Lang? Gordon Lang? Come on. I'm thinking Ryan Gosling. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy could do that? Is yeah. He was, 
You think Tom Hardy? Yeah, Tom Hardy. I could see Tom Hardy. He crazy. How is Tom Hardy now? Because Langston Hughes is 30. Tom Hardy's more in his 30s. I think he might be in his early 40s, but he looks like he's in his 30s. Okay, all right. He stays in his lane, so he doesn't age that bad. Yeah. Okay, okay. He's a white guy that just keeps his mouth shut. One of the few. How about you, Kier? Benedict Cumberbatch. Hell fucking no, bitch. I'm sick of seeing his fan face. I know. You kidding me? That could actually work. He was in every movie from 2012 to 2016. I'm done. Okay, he's taking a little rest now. He's getting ready to come back. Tom Hardy would be so much better and hotter. They're both both good. Daniel Radcliffe. No. (laughs) No. Who are you? Wasn't he tall? Daniel Radcliffe is like 5'4 at best. I don't know how tall Gordon was when he was. I thought I said the description was like. What about Emma's dad? What was that guy's name again? Warrington. Yeah, he's got to be big and blustery. What's the name of uh, John oh, that Goodman? White, yes, that's who I exactly <laughs> no, John, John Goodman. Goodman. Oh my God. John Goodman's like 70 now. No, no not, he was not right for that. Role. Okay, better yet, who's going to play Mungo? Mungo Park? I don't know if he's going to be in the, in the Alexander oh. Gordon Lang movie. Remember, that's my preamble. <laughs> no, I mean, you could. He has a little flashbacks to Mungo. Yeah. I don't see why, but uh, no, we're just going to do the, just going to stick with the Lang story. Okay. Deleted scene. What about Caillou? Who's going to play Caillou? Caillou. Um, Caillou. The René Cali? Yeah. I uh, don't know. A Frenchman. Not Jean Reno. He is too old. Yeah. Um, I don't know I any don't French know actors. Any French the guy? The guy? Oh, Vincent Gallo. I like Vincent Gallo. I think <laughs> there's only I think two that's the French actors. <laughs> that's the only two we know. The guy, my favorite, uh, he was in a movie all about redheads being persecuted. They gave him <laughs> like Gallo? red tips. He's not a redhead. <laughs> the guy is that the guy who was in Black Swan? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's He's what I was thinking. He's in a great French movie about uh, the uh, Beast of Gévaudan. It wasn't he in Irreversible? Mm-hmm. What? In yeah. what? Yes. Irreversible. Yes. Uh, Timothy Chalamet has a French name. There <laughs> no one gives a okay, fuck about Timothy Chalamet. He speaks French too. Really, it's Bongola. It's Jack Labore. We got. Um, and of course, the other main major characters. Yeah. Oh, we got a shifty guy playing Sheikh Babani. He's got to be shifty. Okay. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's it's a our good story. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look out for that movie, 2023, starring <laughs> me and Tom Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a gross pairing. That He's way be. too old yes. for me. Yes. 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 On that's it. Hollywood, Although she though. probably, I don't know how old she was. I don't think she, wait, 24. She, she was probably like 24 or something like that when they got I married. I could do it in a few like years. That-ish. That's it. Thank you, Carrie. Tell them where they can find us. You can find us on weirdworldpodcast.com, uh, weirdworldpodcast on Facebook and Instagram mm-hmm. and Patreon. And the Twitter I never... And the, well, that's Weird World Pod. Yeah, sorry. That's that. kind of defunct. No, I, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I haven't tweeted in ages. Uh, but you can tweet at me. I won't see it. Or weirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. Did I say that? Uh, maybe. If you want to send us an email. Okay. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for good listening, bread everyone. Recipes. What? What'd you say? I don't know. Got any good bread recipes? <laughs>